Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. All right. Good morning. How are we? Good. Good. The sun is coming, at least according to the forecast this morning. I'm afraid to check it once we finish up. uh, Happy Father's Day to the other fathers in the room. Happy Father's Day to my dad, who's likely watching this right now. I promise I will call you later. I figure what's more father-like than a handlebar mustache? My dad had one when I was a kid, and so I thought, why not? And so, Dad, this is a throwback to you. Um, I know that Father's Day is it's a happy day for many of us, but it can also be a painful day for some of us. Some of us may have not had good fathers, or some of us may have, how our father may have passed away. And so I want to be sensitive to that as well, uh, but recognize we want to honor all of our, our men in the room. And I'll tell you, as a father standing over here watching my three kids singing praises to our Heavenly Father, it does nothing else for your heart and your soul than to watch that. And the joy of singing and seeing your kids praise our Heavenly Father. Because here's the reality. I fail them often. I'd probably say I fail them daily. And they probably would agree with that. But our Heavenly Father won't. And so just seeing them praise our Heavenly Father. Um, it's always good to gather for worship, for fellowship, for prayer, for the word. I, I value this day. I hope that you do as well. I find value in it when we gather together. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter or on the app on your phone or your tablet. We're going to be jumping back into chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 18 through 22 here in just a few minutes. Now, sometimes I'm reading scripture you get to a confusing verse or a set of verses that's very hard to understand. And here's what typically happens. One of two things. One is we ignore these verse, this verse or verses altogether. We just kind of skip over it and we just read the ones that make sense to us or at least the ones that we think that make sense to us. Or we find a passage that's hard to understand and we just make it say whatever we want it to say, which is where false interpretation comes in, which is You know, sometimes we go, why come this group over here does this, or why does this denomination do this? And that's part of it. They read it, and they just go, well, we think it means this, and they think it means this. Instead of really doing the the hard work of studying, reflecting, and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. Well, our text today includes one of those verses. It's confusing. It's debated by scholars and theologians who are way smarter than any of us. But... If we approach this text with a spirit of humility, which is what I hope we do with every text, establish what we do know before trying to tackle what we don't know, then I think we can make some headway towards understanding this passage where Peter will encourage us to persevere faithfully as we endure unjust suffering. Now, we already know that Peter's aim in this letter has been to encourage us His aim has been to encourage us to endure unjust suffering. And he's trying to equip us through this letter. And he's going to continue to try to do that with this set of verses. So even though there's going to be a really confusing verse here, he's still trying to aim, his aim is still the same. He wants to encourage us and equip us to endure unjust suffering. And so the main point is very clear this morning, in spite of a confusing verse, that this passage is still about suffering and exaltation which are both the prelude to glory in the life of a believer. So here's what Peter's going to tell us this morning. And this morning is probably going to sound a little bit more like teaching versus preaching. I think we need both. But given the text, I think it's probably going to come across a little bit more that way. 
But here's what, what, we, what Peter's going to do. He's going to remind us that Christ reigns and rules over all things. Therefore, we, as believers, those in Christ, we don't have to fear suffering. And so that's kind of the big reminder for us, is that, look, Christ is overall, he reigns overall, he rules overall. So as you endure persecution and suffering, you don't have to fret, you don't have to wor worry, because Christ sees that, and Christ is overall. And so we're going to have four main points that are going to help us uh, apply this passage to uh, both that context and then our context today. I'm going to list these four, and then we'll break them down this morning, and we'll be done. The first is the atonement of Christ. Second is we're going to look at the announcement of victory. Third, we're going to look at the analogy of baptism. Fourth, we're going to look at the ascension of Christ. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll get into our first point on the atonement of Christ. God, we do come to you, and thank you again for this morning. God, we come as your bride, an imperfect bride, but your bride nonetheless. God, we ask that you go before us, that you'd make your word clear and understandable to us, even as we look at a verse or a couple of verses that might be confusing to us. And God, that we'd walk away remembering that you reign and rule over all, and that we can turn to you, our Heavenly Father. And God, even if we're not sure of, of some clarity on a verse when we leave here, that we can rest in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So first point, the atonement of Christ, verse 18, 1 Peter 3. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now this first verse, I would say as Christians, if you've been in church for any length of time, we're generally comfortable with it. It's, it's what I call a gospel-saturated verse. In fact, we could spend all day on this verse right here and just unpacking its, its gospel excellencies and its, its, its wonderfulness. And what it's telling us is if you are suffering, that you're not alone. Well, why not? I feel alone a lot of times when I'm suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins. So it's reminding us that Christ also suffered, and Christ meets you in your suffering which is a large part why Peter wrote this letter. He's writing this letter to a group of Christians who have found themselves being persecuted, who have found themselves feeling isolated as exiles or as, as aliens or as we like to say, sojourners. And so what he is, he's doing is he's writing this letter to help the believers as they experience this unjust suffering. If you th think about the time you've been down in your life. Maybe you weren't necessarily suffering or, or being persecuted, but you feel like you're suffering. You're going through a hard time. And, and maybe for modern day, maybe it's an email that you get. Now, that might age me a little bit, but maybe it's a, a text message that you get. Or maybe it's an Instagram message that you get from somebody, and it just kind of lifts you up. Just yesterday, I had one of those with an individual who I haven't talked to in like two or three years. And they reached out to me, and they were telling me about experience. And I said, oh, man, I, I went through something very similar a number of years ago. And I'm just, I'm just chatting, trying to encourage. And, and the person said, no one has understood me the way that you have in this experience that I've gone through. And so sometimes we get that. So Peter said, I'm writing this letter. I, I sense that they're going through this, this suffering. I want to help encourage and lift them up. We also find here this big doctrine. You ever heard of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement? Let me break it down just real briefly. And that, the idea that Christ suffered for sins, that Christ was pierced for our transgressions, that Christ was crushed for our iniquities, and by Christ's wounds, we are healed. If you look back in Romans, 
3.23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we see this key statement on the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The fact that Christ suffered and he died as the righteous one in place of the unrighteous. That he suffered and died in your place. That he suffered and died in my place. In order to bring us to God. We had no other way to be, I mean, we're sitting here celebrating Father's Day. We had no other way to be reconciled with our heavenly Father. But, the, but he sent Christ to suffer in our place, the unrighteous for the, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we can have a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. Christ who was blameless, righteous, and died for the unrighteous. And so Christ is your righteousness. And so he starts out this morning reminding us that, that Christ is your righteousness, and that Christ died instead of you, in place of you, for you. And so Peter really comes out the gate here with verse 18. He's given the gospel and, and sung. Jesus in my place. So when someone asks you, you know, I know sometimes you'd be nervous. Talks about giving a defense for your beliefs in, in Scripture. And you might say, what do I do if somebody asks me about the gospel? If all else fails, because we all get nervous and we all get tongue-tied and we all forget, what am I supposed to say now? I'm, I'm just not sure. Jesus in my place. Just remember that. And so Peter's kind of giving us this gospel in some. And that the perfect atonement of sins has been paid for once and for all by Christ Jesus. It says in, up here, it says that Christ also suffered once for sins. This has massive implications, especially if we look at that in light of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, if you're, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, or just as a reminder, during Jewish Passover, this is what would happen. They would go out and find a spotless, perfect lamb, and that lamb would shed its blood and it, it's, it, the blood sacrifice, it would serve as a payment for your sin for that year. So because of your sin and my sin, a perfect spotless lamb would have to be slaughtered and blood would be shed. But then you were cleansed of your sins. Well, what was the problem with that system? Because it did, it did work to a degree. But what happened? You would sin again. And you'd have to do the payment again next year. So you'd have to go find out and find another spotless perfect lamb. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd be friends with a farmer who's got all, just, all these little lambs, you know, right? Like, can we keep this one in this nice little protective box and the extra hay and the padding and the bubble wrap? And like, because I, I know I'm going to need it, right? Like, can I invest in those? Can I get some stock in these lambs over here? I might get excited on that one. And you have to do it again and again and again. I heard this week that it's estimated. 250,000 sheep a year were slaughtered. 250,000 a year to make payment for your sin. $250,000. That's a lot. A perfect spotless land. That's just a year. So do the math year over year. Do the math of how old you are. 250,000. You multiply that by your, by your year. To slaughter to make payment for your sin. And so Peter reminds us, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sin. Some translations say once for all. In other words, you and I no longer need 250,000 sheep a year to pay for our sins. Why? Because Christ suffered once for sins. 
We have Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus who went once and all and died for all sins. Jesus didn't have to do it over and over again. Why? Because Jesus was the ultimate perfect sacrifice. And so Peter's reminding us, look to Christ to be saved. As the text says, that he might bring us to God. So how do we get to God? How do we get reconciled with our Heavenly Father? It's through Christ Jesus who suffered for our sins. And so Jesus takes us to God. I heard one pastor say he's like a holy, perfect Uber driver. Like, how do you get to God? You go through Jesus. Like, that's the, that's the app that you want to dial up to come pick you up, to take you there. And in the middle of suffering, remember, this is to this people who are suffering. This is good news. This reminder that, yes, you might be going through this, but don't forget, even on your bad days, your lonely days, you're at the end of yourself. You think, I can't do this any longer, that Christ also suffered so that you're not alone in your suffering. And part of this good news is that death was not the end for Christ, and death is not the end for those that are in Christ. Does that make sense? Now we get verse 18, and if Peter stopped there, we say, amen, shortest message Matt's ever preached, and let's go on and have lunch and celebrate Father's Day. But then we arrive at verse 19, and things start getting a little confusing. So our second point this morning is the announcement of victory. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, Peter's words were no doubt clear to his first audience. I believe they were tracking with and they understood. But for later generations, this is a really hard verse and verses to understand. Martin Luther writes in his commentary, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. And so as I studied this this, this week, I learned there are three main theories that scholars believe regarding this verse. I'm going to give them to you briefly, and then we're going to focus on the one that I believe is most accurate. So first, some believe that Jesus descended into hell and that he preached to the spirits of those who perished in the flood during the time of Noah. Some would hold this view, would also think that Jesus proclaimed to the dead was the gospel, offering them a further opportunity to repent. In other words, this group believes that basically Jesus came and offered a second chance to this group who he had declared judgment on. Whenever the flood happened, it was just Noah and his family who were saved. That's one theory. Second is that Christ's preaching was done in the Spirit through Noah. Peter says it was the Spirit of Christ who preached to the Old Testament prophets. Christ preached uh, through Noah would be a case in point. Those to whom Noah preached were not in prison literally, but they could have been described as in prison spiritually. And then we have the third theory. And this is that the understanding that the spirits in prison refer to fallen angels rather than to human beings. Jesus proclaims to them his victory and their doom. This is seen by some as taking the place after his resurrection. As he ascends into heaven, Jesus confronts the principalities and powers, showing his victory and power over them. Now, instead of focusing on all three, I want to spend our time focusing on the one as, as I studied and prayed and discerned that I believe is the most accurate. Now, here's the catch. If you disagree with me, it's okay. Why? New Testament scholars and theologians have debated this for years, and they can't come to a consensus. And so if you disagree with me, I encourage you to study the text on your own. I always encourage you to study the text on your own. 
So here's the three questions I want us to ask in order to figure out what does this actually mean? The three questions are who, what, and when. So first, who are these spirits in prison? Is it those who never believed and who are now getting a second chance? Is it Old Testament believers? Or, I mean, think about it. In the Old Testament, Christ had not come and been born as a virgin and lived perfect life and died and resurrected as we know. Or is this the fallen angels who he's going to declare his victory over? Second question, what did he proclaim? Is this implying a chance, a second chance of repentance? Hey, you missed that first time? I'm giving you one more chance. We do this with our children, right? You got one more chance or I'm taking it all away. Or you're not having your summer fun. We just had the first week of summer vacation, so parents in the room understand. Was this a completion of redemption? Going back to the Old Testament believers, say, hey, look what happened. Like, you, you died before this whole thing took place, <laughs> and this took place, so now, here, let me, let me, let's come this to completion. Or was this victory over fallen angels? Was this what was being proclaimed? And the third question is, when did he proclaim it? Was it in the days of Noah? And what took place in the flood? Was this before the resurrection? Of Christ? Or is this after the resurrection of Christ? Although the three main views, and we don't have time to take a poll on which, which one ever thinks it is in vote, I agree with New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner, what he calls the majority view. So even though there's three main ones, there is a one that majority of scholars lean towards, and that's our third view. That that Jesus that, that they understand the spirits in prison to refer to the fallen angels rather than human beings. And that Christ is going and declaring his victory to them and, and over them in between his death and his resurrection. And Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which we're not going to read, but here's part of the reason I, I believe that. We see there's fallen angels who disobey God by overstepping their boundaries. They leave heaven. They take women as their wives and have children with them, which comes immediately before the count of Noah and the flood from verse 5 onwards. And the argument is that Christ is proclaiming his victory over such beings. That you may have rebelled, and you may have left, and you disobeyed, and this took place. But now, look, I'm declaring this victory over you. And so verse 19, he says, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, the word prison is not used elsewhere in Scripture as a place of punishment after death for human beings. While it is used for Satan in Revelation 27 and other fallen angels. But it's not used for humans. The same point's made in Jude 1, verse 6, which I think I do have a slide for that verse. It says, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then in 2 Peter 2, 4, he says, For God, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So given the context of Genesis, the context of Jude, given the context of 2 Peter and all of Scripture, I believe it's a good argument that here that 1 Peter refers to fallen angels who have disobeyed God in the days of Noah and as a result are now part of the demonic realm. And that Christ proclaimed his victory over sin, death, and grave to them. So what's the point for us? You might think, okay, that's great, but this is maybe slightly, like I said, it's a confusing verse. You might say, what's, what's our point, Matt? 
That Christ reigns over darkness and evil. That Jesus declared to a group of demons in prison, as we see here in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 1, that this is the group that Jesus wants to proclaim his victory. It's like Jesus walks up to them, wherever they are, he proclaims his victory, and he says, look, you rebelled, you did this, you think you won, you think you can mess this up. I came, I lived a perfect life, I died this death on the cross, guess what, I'm about to raise out of the grave, and then he drops the mic. So Jesus does a mic drop on them, and he says, good try, it didn't work. I was trying to think of a good sports analogy, I couldn't fully think of a perfect one, but Rocky IV, anyone ever seen the Rocky? I mean, I'm a big Rocky movie fan. Okay, is that like a dad movie at this point? Probably. <laughs> Love the Rocky movies, okay? If anybody wants to give a good Father's Day gift, we can watch those this afternoon in my house. <laughs> but Rocky IV, uh, whenever he's going to fight the Russian after his friend had been, been killed, you know, he, he gets there and they get ready to fight and they put their gloves and the Russian says, I must break you. <laughs> and Rocky's just like, okay. Well, then Rocky ends up winning and he ends up winning the crowd over. But he didn't say back, I'm going to break you. He didn't threaten back. It was just like, I'm going to show you in my actions. You're showing me in your, I must break you in your attitude and your power. But, but Rocky didn't do that. A, a friend of mine was a high school football coach. And he said that uh, he was coaching his son's high school football team. And they were playing the most, uh, the undefeated team in their conference. And they went to play this team. He said that the star player, which they knew was going to be a challenge for him the whole game, he came up to him and he said, Oh, it's about to be a long day for you boys. And, and my friend, being the adult in this situation, said, you know, I really wanted to say something, put him in his place. And he said, I just looked at him. And we went and had the game. He goes, I'll be, he goes, I'll be honest, because we were down for the first half of the game because of this kid. He was so good. He was a running back. And he says, finally, though, towards the fourth quarter, we started to make our way back. We inched our way back. Because in the end, we won the game. We disrupted their undefeated season. And he said, those, those kids were crying at the end of the game, the kids from the undefeated team. This kid was crying. And he thought, man, what do I do as an adult here? Like, I, I, you know, I want to get this back. So he said that he walked, he was shaking their hands like they always do. And as he walked by him, he just winked. And he kept on going. So it was like, it's, it, you know, it's like, look, you thought you were going to win. You thought you had this victory. But in the end, we actually had the victory. And so Christ is going declaring this victory that took place. And so based on my study, the biblical and historical context, I believe this the time in between the death and resurrection. It's the most natural reading. Verse 21 uses, which we haven't we got to, verse 21 uses the term resurrection. And he could have used that word in verse 19, but they chose not to. So I don't believe he didn't go to hell. It doesn't say that he went to hell. But the point is that Christ declared victory. Showing and reminding us that the battle has already been won. And your suffering and your persecution. That is the reminder. The battle's already been won. We're told in the Bible that there's coming a day that every mocker will bow their knee and will be silenced, and they will confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. So regardless what you endure in this life, regardless what you're mocked or made fun of, that one day it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Amen. I'm just glad I didn't have to ask for it that time. We got some amens. Which is why we need to stop thinking that we always have to defend God in our suffering. I'm not saying we don't stand up for what's right. But I think sometimes we think, you know, I've got to defend God and I've got to do this. God. God's capable. God didn't need you before. He doesn't need you now. God is more than capable of defending himself. That brings us to number three, our analogy of baptism. Verse 21 says, baptism, 
which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world is Peter doing from verses 19 and 20 to 21? Like, if you're just reading this in your quiet time, you're like, why was this do a quiet time again? This is just really, con- this is confusing. I might need a second cup of coffee here. Well, Peter's doing like all preachers do. He's taking a rabbit trail. He, he's kind of focused here, and all of a sudden he veers off here. And we see that sometimes. Sometimes they come back around, or sometimes they just go to a completely different thought. And so he comes in, and he gives us this comparison between salvation and the ark and baptism. In both instances, believers are saved through the waters of judgment, since baptism portrays salvation through judgment. But what does Peter mean by saying, baptism now saves you? Now hopefully we can get some clarity on this. The mere mechanical act of baptism does not save. So sometimes we'll have someone who I'll meet with somebody and they'll say, hey, I was baptized as a baby. I was baptized as a little kid. I had no clue what I was doing. I had no clue about the gospel. Do I need to get baptized again? And usually I'll respond to them, you did not get baptized. You took a bath. (laughs) Because you had no idea what you were doing. And there's nothing saving in itself about the baptism. So I said, yes, now that you are a believer, I think you should actually get baptized. That's great. You took that bath when you were a kid. For Peter explicitly says, it's not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, the the cleansing of the baptism itself, the baptism waters, they don't cleanse anyone. But it's as an appeal to God for a clear conscience, as it says here. In other words, it's this inward spiritual transaction between God and the individual. It's an outward sign of an inward change that the Holy Spirit is doing within you. And so baptism saves you as he phrases it because it it represents an inward faith. In other words, you've been saved through the blood of Jesus and you've recognized your need. And now as evidence of that salvation, you're getting baptized. Now in our culture and context, we don't tend to take baptism as seriously. Now I've been overseas and some other parts of the world. And once someone says, I'm getting baptized, I'm going through the waters of baptism, that's really when they're saying, I'm serious about my faith. I'm walking away from our former way of life. I'm publicly declaring this, especially if they're coming from a Muslim background, they're coming from a Hindu background, where they will very much be persecuted for their faith. They may lose their families. I know individuals, met individuals, who have been totally denounced from their family, will no longer have relationships with them, unless God acts and their family also gives their life to Christ. Whereas for us, it's a little more like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do this and I'll get in. But I think we need to up the ante on this idea of baptism, really what it symbolizes. And it saves you only so much as it's grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what the act of baptism represents. And when you're going down in that water, that's, it's like you're going down into the coffin, into the ground. That you're, you are relating to Christ's death. That when you come up out of the water, that you now have this new life in Christ. That you have resurrected as a new being. That's why I talks about being born again. Because this is when you, you, you've now died. Now you come back out and you've been born again. And it represents the fact that Christians are clothed with Christ. And in our union with Christ, we share in his victory over sin. That's how we baptize people here at Sojourn. Praise God, we've had four baptisms this year, and I'm praying that we have more, and we do it as an outward sign of an inward change, where someone says, I'm no longer the same person. I may physically look like the same person. I may be wearing the same outward clothing. I have the same accent, the same personality, the same family, but there's something different about me. 
because Christ has changed me from within, and now I'm expressing it outwardly. As I expressed Christ's death, burial, resurrection. It's a great testimony. That's why I love, I know we did some baptisms here inside because it was Easter and it was cold, and a week later it was still cold, but we forced someone to do it outside. I love doing it outside by the street because there's people walking, there's people biking, there's neighbors out in their yard, there's people driving by, and you were thinking, what in the world do they have a swimming pool in April out in front of their building? And it's because we're declaring publicly what has taken place in their life. We're declaring the gospel to them publicly that they're not seeing here in this building. And Peter's showing how Noah's story is comparable to our story. And so this, this context, although confusing to a degree, it's very appropriate for the whole section of verses 13 through 22. And the parallel between the situation of Noah and the flood and the situation of Peter's readers is clear at several points. Theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem points out uh, seven different points where this is similar. I'm just going to list these for us quickly. So Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers. So are Peter's readers. Second, Noah was righteous in the midst of wicked in a wicked world. And Peter exhorts his readers to be righteous in the midst of wicked unbelievers. Third, Noah witnessed boldly to those around him. Peter encourages his readers to be good witnesses to unbelievers around them. Be willing to suffer, if need be, to bring others to God. Fourth, Noah realized that judgment was soon to come upon the world. Peter's readers reminds his readers that God's judgment is certainly coming, and perhaps sooner than you realize. Fifth, in the unseen spiritual realm, Christ preached through Noah to unbelievers around him. By saying this, Peter can remind his readers of the reality of Christ's work in the unseen spiritual realm and the fact that Christ is also with them, empowering their witness to make it spiritually effective. Six, at the time of Noah, God was patiently awaiting repentance from unbelievers before they were brought to judgment. And so that is the situation Peter's readers find themselves in and we find ourselves in today. The reason... God is continuing to, to tarry on, the, on this side of the earth. And you go, man, we're, I'm going through all this suffering. God, just come back. Right? If you ever feel that way like I do, like, God, come back. May, may, may you come back. Well, it's because God's being patient. He's waiting for the repentance of unbelievers in our midst. And so, in some ways, I mean, I'm like, hopefully most of you are. I'm like, God, come back. I'm done with this life. I can't take it anymore. Take the wheel, Jesus. You know, it's like, take this life. But in some ways, that's selfish. And it's God's going, I'm being patient because there's others. I have other sons, I have other daughters, and you want me to be patient with you, and now I'm being patient with them. And by the way, we're all given a role in that. So we're to build relationships and open our mouths and share the love of God with others. Let me just go on that one for just a second. I know sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes we push back on that. But think about this comparison here. If you were Noah and his family, eight, and it feels like we're going to get a flood in Portland, and there was this flood coming, and your dad, it's the crazy guy in the village, builds his boat. But you believe in all your heart that this, you are, they're going to drown if they don't listen to us. Would you not go out of your way to sound like a crazy idiot to help save them? To save your friends? To save your neighbors? Save your coworkers? Save your family members? Oh, no, I don't want to say anything. They're going to think I'm dumb. I'm afraid that I know the rains are going to come, the flood's going to happen, but I don't want to get made fun of. Meanwhile, the flood comes. You're sipping on your coffee. Oh, dang. <laughs> Water's getting higher. Oh, man, that was my fifth grade teacher right there. Oh, man, there goes the neighbor. Not to make light of it. 
That sounds silly, right? Like, no, you wouldn't do that. You'd be like, no, 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 no. It's really going to happen. This is going to happen. You're going to die. You're going to be separated from God. Yet we're in the same situation. It's not going to be a flood. It's going to be eternal judgment and separation from God. And yet we're like, I'm so glad I got this relationship with God. Okay? That's my sermon within a sermon. Number seven. Noah was finally saved with a few others. Peter encourages his readers that, though perhaps few, they too will finally be saved. For Christ has triumphed over all things, and they've all been subject to him. So you see, once this passage is clear of misunderstanding, it should also function today as an encouragement. Here's the encouragement to us. To be bold in our witness, just like Noah was. To be confident that though we may be few, especially in our context, that God will certainly save us as he did Noah, and he's got others he's saving as well. To remind us that just as certainly as the flood eventually comes, final judgment of the Lord will eventually come. And Christ will ultimately triumph over all evil in the universe. And so in Noah's day, the message was, get in the boat in order to be saved. Our message is come to Christ and come to the waters of baptism. Baptism which saves you, not as salvation, but with the right heart, because you've already trusted Christ for your salvation. Where you're pledging yourself to the winning team. Sometimes it looks like the enemy has won. Sometimes the enemy is like this, that, that player who was overconfident. It's going to be a long day for you, boys. But in the end, we're in the team that looks like you're losing. Sometimes you feel that way. Man, I feel like I'm on the losing team. But in the end, the victory will be won. And we get to be with Jesus as he drops the mic, as we do that week. Now we're pledging with our baptism that we are on the winning team. We're announcing our faith in Christ. And finally, we see the ascension of Christ, verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter completes the discussion with a mention of Christ's ascension into heaven where Jesus Christ has gone to heaven and now is at the right hand of God. And so the central truth in verses 18 through 22 is this, that Christ has triumphed over his enemies. Christians can therefore rejoice in their sufferings knowing that Christ has reigned victorious. That Christ is over all, he's over all darkness and evil, and everything is subjected to him. Through his death, through his resurrection, through his exaltation, and his ascension. And you, Christians, sojourners, are connected to him, and you will be vindicated because you are connected to Christ. And so you will suffer now. You will suffer in this life. But we have every reason to hope in the midst of our suffering. Who here can harm you? No one. We have every reason to abound in hope. Thanks be to God. And because of Christ's victory, we can now face suffering as Christians. With confidence rather than panic. And hope rather than despair. Because the road marked with Christian suffering is no matter what twist and the turns, the ups and the downs and the sojourn that we're on, the road to vindication and glory. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us and we'll respond to our King who's reigned victorious in worship. God, we thank you. Our Heavenly Father, who's holy and almighty, who saw us in the midst of our own mess or erect our lives God, you could have just left us to our own vices, let us waste away. You could have completely just 
wiped us all out. But God, you chose to offer us salvation. Got to think back to the story of Noah and just the fact they declared to their, their friends, their family, the barista at their coffee shop, their neighbors, their co-workers. Judgment is coming, but we have salvation. And they mocked them and they laughed at them and they didn't listen to them. God, it did not end well for them. But God, you today have given us the same opportunity. It's not too late for our neighbors. It's not too late for our co-workers. It's not too late for our friends, our classmates, our teachers. And though we may suffer, we may get mocked, we may get scorned, we may feel persecuted and isolated. God, that we know we're already on the winning team and that it's worth this temporary unjust suffering, reminding that you suffered and you suffered once for all sins. God, that we may see some join us on the winning team. Winning because of you, your death, your, your burial, and your resurrection. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.